This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. For centuries, designers have been looking to the past for ideas, adapting styles and approaches, reinterpreting iconic pieces, recoloring and rescaling vintage textiles, re-examining the works of past masters to see what remains relevant, even as modern life has undergone so many dramatic changes. And there's so much design history to choose from. How do designers today seek inspiration from the past, whether it's neo-Gothic, Art Deco, or French 40s? Where do they look for historic ideas that can work for today? What's ready for a revival and what remains hopelessly dated, never to rise again from the dustbins of history? I have with me today two young designers and a design historian who all understand the importance of knowing the past in order to shape the future of design. First up is San Francisco designer Naz Nazawa. She founded her firm, Nas Design, in 2014, and since then has become known for her colorful, sumptuous, and bold rooms full of dramatic shapes and luxurious details. Her design influences range from Japanese tea houses to mid-century classics to English arts and crafts, but she prides herself on making each project, whether residential, retail, or hospitality, serve the needs of her clients. Hello, Nas. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Michael. I'm so excited about this. So glad you're here. Dan Mazzarini's Manhattan-based firm, BHDM, crafts tightly edited, clean-lined, and tailored interiors for city apartments, beach houses, and commercial projects. His restrained palette and refined sensibility draw upon 1930s machine-age aesthetic, industrial chic, and 1970s minimalism to create rooms that are comfortable and sleek and very of the moment. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much. What a nice intro. And finally, I'm so pleased to have with us Emily Evans-Erdmans. Emily is a multi-multi-hyphenate, an antiques connoisseur, a dealer in contemporary art, antiques, and the decorative arts, a teacher, and a design historian who has written numerous books, including important volumes on Mario Boada, Henri Samuel, and Madeleine Castang. And her new book, A Biography of Mario Boada, will be published by Rizzoli this fall. Hello, Emily. Oh, hi, Michael. I'm so happy to be here. So I'm so glad all of you are here. This is one of my favorite topics, you know, design history and, you know, lack of knowledge thereof. I want to start with you, Dan. How did you learn design history? Because I've often heard complaints from older designers, uh, shall we say, that, you know, a lot of younger designers don't know their history. So I'd love to know how you learn design history. Do you feel that it's the way it's being taught is adequate today? I'd love to get a sense from you. Sure. Well, my background's interior design, but I was in a program that was interior design and architecture. So you put all those people together in a room and it's, you know, two different sides of the same coin and what we're interested in. But it was architecture history. I had a history of interiors class and my teacher of that class said the history of interior is the history of chairs and the history of chairs is the history of the leg of the chair. I didn't memorize them all. Emily, I was kind of nervous coming on with you. I was like, I need to bust out my flashcards. But <laughs> it's a long way back, but it's in that hair somewhere. So but I love yeah. that. So the, so the history of the leg of the chair. I think that's kind of true. Yeah. So where did you study, Dan? 
I went to school in Ohio. It was Miami University. So it was an interior design accredited school. But, you know, going to school in the middle of the cornfields, I was excited to get to the city as fast as I could. So, and 20 years later, you know, it's interesting how even though the Midwest is maybe not as designed forward, it probably is more so now than 20 years pre-internet, right? But it's interesting to learn history, even of America, by being there and pulling that forward into our designs, too. So... You can learn everything. I am right? so encouraged to learn that you are studying design history in the Midwest. I think that's such a great, that's very reassuring to me. Nas, how about you? What is your design history background? How, what did you learn? What did you learn in school? What did you learn on your own? I'd love to have a sense. Oh, yes. Well, I went to school for business. Uh, I'm from LA where, you know, the oldest building is about 100 years old, which is not very old. And then I went to school in Philadelphia where all of a sudden I was surrounded by actual historical buildings, which was phenomenal. So I'm a little business student just running around being bored to death by accounting and not realizing that this was not what I was meant to do (laughs) and realizing, my gosh, like I always wanted to study architecture. Why not architectural history? You know, serves a general education purpose, and then I absolutely fell in love. I focused in modern architecture when I was at school, which is really very specifically the history of modern architecture in Western Europe, and then as far west in the United States as Frank Lloyd Wright's Chicago. Uh, we barely even covered California at all. No, so Richard a Neutra. ton of my education... Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> right? Like just, tr- I mean, maybe a building, maybe a building. Right. I focused on the glass house, Philip Johnson, and then that was it. Right. You know, just lots of right angles and clean lines. And then I came out to San Francisco in 2008, still not doing interior design. And a lot of my education just came from being here, being surrounded by Victorians, being surrounded by the, you know, buildings that were designed by Julia Morgan and realizing, wow, I don't think I ever even knew that there were women in this field for, you know, hundreds of years. And many of and- us didn't know that. My goodness, it's wild. And so, yeah, a lot of my education has truly been on the job, so to speak. You know, Francis Elkin is kind of my new obsession. I'm thrilled that there's a book coming out this year that I can just pour into. Mario Boada, I became obsessed with recently, recently, because a client mentioned being obsessed with chintz and she really wanted me to get an education in it so I could do sort of a me version of a today chintz in her home in East Harlem. So truly, very humbly so, I didn't get an education formally in most of interior design history. It's really just been the internet. Right. And the internet, I think, has changed everything because, you know, on Instagram alone, there's historic places popping up in my feed, certainly numerous times a day from numerous sources. But, you know, sometimes it can be confusing because you don't get enough information. You get the visuals, but you don't get that kind of information. So, Emily, I'd love to talk to you because you like me, started pre-internet. How did you end up becoming the design historian that you are? I, know, I think you studied with um, Sotheby's, was it? Exactly. It started, um, I studied Latin in college. That was wow, my major. That was but it was really, that was obscure. But that was really just so I could spend a semester in Rome. And I think there's a huge connection between travel and design history. When I finished college in Ohio, I went to Oberlin, I lived in Paris and I worked as an au pair for two years. And that is where I discovered design history. That is where I discovered the art of a house museum, that a commode could be as just as an incredible piece of art as a Fragonard or, you know, a painting on the walls of the Louvre. And so that's what prompted me to discover this program at Sotheby's Institute in London. And I studied fine and decorative arts. And I came back to New York and worked 
and 18th century English furniture was my specialty. But what I was really interested in was the whole environment, the whole room, having the opportunity to live in Europe for three years and just being surrounded by so many centuries of history. You can't, you can't deny it. And I think what Nas said about design history in school, because I have taught um, at FIT in New York School of Interior Design, is so many people in design schools and architecture school, 20th, the 20th century is all about the story of modernism. And nobody, if you actually open, and it's my favorite thing to do, is like go through 1930s Vogue or Harper's Bazaar, and the backdrops of the socialites or whoever's featured, they're not living, most of them aren't living in modernist interiors. There's some kind of interesting hybrid going on or eclecticism. And so traditionalism or whatever you want to call call it classicism, has been so alive in the 20th century, but you don't really learn about it. Right. It was like you had to look elsewhere because I think, the you know, the international movement sort of took over in this country, but most yes. people didn't live that way, you know? And I think it's always... That's right. It's always been interesting, you know, what is shown in the media, and now it's, it's I, th- I would say, social media, isn't always how the majority of people live. And, you know, also... You know, we show these new homes or whatever in the magazines or online. But, you know, most people adapt their homes as they move along. That's, I think, one of the things, and I, I am so glad you brought it up, Emily, is house museums. I personally love a house museum. You know, I don't want to live in a house museum, but it is, I, whenever I travel, I always try and go to the major house museums. Listen, I'm even a fan of the little miniature rooms in Chicago Art Institute. You know, it's the, oh, they're those are so incredible. incredible because you can learn so much. So, Dan, I'd love to get a sense from you because you have a very, you know, modernist, I would say, informed aesthetic. But there's a lot of references in your work to other periods. So I'd love to get a sense from you. How, is it clients that urge you to do things? Do you have ideas? How do you look to the past? Because, you know, we've seen so many periods come in and out of fashion. You know, I mean, I'm sure Emily remembers this. When I first came to New York, we won't say how many decades ago, you know, everything was <laughs> Biedermeyer or arts and crafts. Two movements I still continue to yeah. love, you know. But now... They're not. I do too. I mean, I do too. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, if we, so your question about like, where does the inspiration come from and how do I pull it into our projects? You know, for me, it's always been about a mix, like being sort of this person that's from the middle and gravitates towards the edges of the, the country. I've always loved movies to start, right? It's sort of this imagination. And and I think, Emily, you talk about the backgrounds. That's really how I look at design is we're making the background for people's lives. And it doesn't mean that you have to live just with convenience. Living with antiques, not being afraid of things because you don't know what they are. My, I think my goal and I feel my job as the designer is to bring things to people's lives to enhance them. And Emily, I think you're right. Like, this collected nature, this this piece of furniture that's more than just um, functional, but an object of beauty, are fun ways that we can sort of do this blend. It's and I like all the blends. I like old with new. I like high with low. I like things that are provenance with things that are you know flea market. And so for me, my background from retail onward, and certainly my years at Ralph Lauren, taught me like. You can collect things. There are ways that we build sort of a sense of history through objects, even if it's not a totally historic space. And that's part of the fun. Yeah. And Nas, how about you? Are there periods that, you know, you're, you have a, quite an eclectic range of, of your work. I, I really and I know, Yeah, you really. <laughs> so are there periods that you're thinking about? Like, oh, I'd love to be able to, like, use more arts and crafts or, I'm, you know, 
I'm looking at, you know, Italian mid-century or something. How, how does it go? How does that work for you? Oh, a hundred percent. I go through seasons. You know, I think like so many folks who find ourselves in creative fields, I can't just sort of get attached to any one thing. I'll have forever loves always. But presently I am in a season of being very interested in folk art. Um, I'm working on a project where all inspiration by way of Bavaria, by way of just sort of like folk painted architecture, um, frankly, cuckoo clocks. Like I'm taking a lot of inspiration literally from how overly simplified little architectural ornaments need to be on a cuckoo clock to fit the scale of a building this big or a representation of a building this big? And how do you take that and sort of like amplify that to a human scale? Um, So anything that's sort of like hand-painted and ridiculous is kind of, but not ridiculous because it was meant to be ridiculous. Just sort of like today, there's sort of a wild absurdity to the fact that we're collecting these gorgeous things. Folk art, just hand-painted objects. And then also Italian sort of late mid-century, the 70s era of sort of like very shiny, leather, lumpy, sort of like blabo. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of my my season as we we stand here today. It's so interesting because, you know, we have seen a lot of sort of 70s disco glamour, you know, Saint Laurent coming back. But I have also noticed of late, and this is so interesting now, as I never would have guessed folk art, but I have seen quilts coming back into style and dealers selling quilts and things. It's so exciting. I actually am taking, I'm doing a whole house in New York where all of the bathroom tile design is inspired by old traditional quilt making. And I know Nantucket by Design coming up in August is going to be doing a focus on quilts um, with Christopher Farcloth. So yeah, quilts are totally a thing right now, which is so fun. And I think, Dan, to your point about the high-low and the mix and the collecting, I think there's something so absolutely charming about how we... And and actually, too, I was going to comment with regard to the sort of like history of 20th century architecture and interiors being about modernism, the whole political movement in modernism to sort of make buildings accessible and for the people and the sort of like socialist era of international style. I find it really interesting that things that like regular people may just to have functional beauty in their homes as having kind of this attention put on it as a collectible or as a super valuable thing. So interesting. Like Emily, I'm sure you'll remember like probably like 40 years ago, quilts were very big collectible and then you didn't hear about them for the longest time. Well, when Nas was talking about her tile inspiration, I was thinking of how Mario in the late 70s painted a wood floor to look like a a quilt, you know? And it's just, it's sort of these, the past is an evergreen point of departure and how Nas will translate it will be so different and will be of, you know, will be of today and only, you know, so her, whereas Mario's was so him. But but there's so much in the past to look at. I, I just can't imagine how, why wouldn't you want your design to benefit from knowing the depth of the past to draw upon and mine? But that brings up another question, Emily, which is how do you decide what you're going to focus on? I mean, like clearly you're almost done, or maybe you're done with your new Mario book, which is really in-depth and which is going to be wonderful. I have no doubt, like your previous one. But what are you looking at next? Because, I mean, I think you would agree that there are some Victorian Furniture, Herder Brothers, Belter, those kind of things. I think it's very hard to adapt them for contemporary spaces. So what are you looking at next in terms of what period you're thinking about or a designer that you feel is worthy? Because, I mean, you've dealt with some of the best, Henri Samuel and Madeleine Castang. I mean, those they are perennial influences. 
So I am doing some designing right now. And these two projects are both informed by very specific things that the client already has or desires. And they're both based on historic references. And I'm sure Nas and Dan, it's the same for you. And hardly do you ever get a project that's just like, do whatever you want and there's nothing to bounce off of. So one project is sort of a Mexican style house. So I'm diving in to kind of Santa Barbara, 1920s design. And there are all these books on Mexico, like Newell Turner's book that just came out that I'm I'm just absorbing. And then another, a client loves Dorothy Draper and Elsie DeWolf. And we're, um, the entrance hall of her house is going to be like Yolanda and the Thief's floor that um, Tony Duguet designed, this sort of undulating black and white I think the past is an inspiration, and I would I would lump movies into um, into that, which Dan has also mentioned that movies are such a because they have that fantasy element to them, and the way that they mix up historical references in kind of a nonsensical way is so exciting. And I think so many designers look at at movies and even fashion designers. I think a house is is telling is telling a story, and like what is the story you're telling? And that brings up another point, Dan. I'd love to ask you, people complain that young designers don't know their history, but what about clients? Are there, are, do your clients know history? Do they appreciate history? Do they come to you, as, as Emily was saying, where they love this and they want to adapt this for their lives? Or do you have to guide them? Or is it a mix? I think it's a mix, but I also think that people people know what they like, but they don't know what it is. And I think, you know, the fun part for us is we do a couple things. We do a lot of things as designers, <laughs> but I think we we have to earn people's trust. And part of that is education and then giving people the optionality. So it's fun to say, oh, that thing that you like comes from here and this is what it used to be. But I also like to go the step for, further and say, like, this is how we can reimagine it. Because I think living with the we'll call it antiques, living with the past, any of those things, we have to bring it forward. That's my point of view, at least, is like we have to make these things relevant or a beautiful object. And so the education piece is fun because I think it it, it just helps people understand why we as designers are suggesting what we do too. Right. The one thing that's very interesting is I always have clients who ask for things to be brought into their homes that are antiques or vintage. So if they don't already have those pieces, because a lot of my clients actually are sort of first generation ever interior design clients, which is a huge privilege for me, certainly from an education standpoint, to not only explain to them, this is how it works, but this is why it's important. This is why the work that we do to adorn our homes in a way that brings us to life every morning is valuable and worth spending on. But they don't really know what exactly they want with regard to vintage or antiques. There's always an openness there. As far as I can figure out, at least so far, it almost feels as though for a lot of these folks, they know where they come from and they know that, you know, the the background that they have and their culture has soul. But the things in the home that they live in right now don't have soul. And so it's almost, uh, and, and this is actually something that's very deeply personal to myself because this is how I feel about bringing antiques. There's something that feels almost like a facsimile of history for my own history by bringing in antiques and objects that come from the past and that have their own stories and have collected their own their own narratives that by bringing them into the home you get to have that history. It becomes a part of yours. And it almost sort of like, if I was born on this date, 
my story actually predates that date now because of what I've chosen to have around me. And I think that's really special and it's a privilege and it's a a thing that I don't take lightly. So when we're choosing things that are new to the client, but old to the world, you know, we're, we're hunting for that connection that what is their story and what is this object story and how do we bring those together in a way that's clever or playful or deeply meaningful. Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Cherish podcast. I'm Anna Brockway, co-founder and president of Cherish, and I'm delighted to announce that Cherish is now offering only to the trade the most generous returns policy in our industry. That is a 14-day return window on all our exceptionally curated inventory of home furnishings and art purchased by the trade. Designers asked for it, and we listened. This free offer is now available to interior designers on purchases made between now through October 31st. So it's time to get shopping. For more information, visit cherish.com trade. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. And now back to our show. You know, I always say people like to have something to talk about at a cocktail party to say, oh, this chair came from the Paris flea market. So, you know, they love a little bit of narrative. And I think if you can imbue that into a space, you know, as opposed to, and we've seen them, you know, interiors that are just, everything came from a showroom, everything was new. And, you know, they're just not, as you said, Nas, they don't have much soul. But, you know, there was a time when antiques and vintage pieces were not in fashion. And, you know, I, the younger people were saying, oh, I don't, why would I? I remember one decorator telling me that this client and said, why would I want any, anyone else's used furniture in my home? You know, and I think that has changed. Emily, where do you think that people learn about design history now? I mean, let's, I'm not talking about designers who study it in design school or in college, but is it magazines still? Is it books? Obviously, you, you write books. You hope that they're out there. Do they learn from dealers? Do you, do you, Would you take a client to a dealer to show them things? Michael, this is such a great question. And I think, well, number one, travel. A person has to be open. They have to have a certain level of curiosity. And otherwise, they're they're not going to understand anything. And Nas and Dan will be that much more important to walking them through and introducing them to things. But I would I would say travel. And then I would say Instagram. I mean, Instagram is sort of the place that so many people who are visual and want to see new things visual, you know, they travel visually through Instagram. And then I would say sites like Cherish, where you're shopping, you know, you're actually like you're on a mission and you're trying to find something. And then you see something and you're like, this is crazy and I like it. And then you, with the internet, you, you know, you Google what is Wiener Werkstatt or what is whatever. I don't know if this is applicable, but I, I met this woman and she had four of the exact same coffee table books on her coffee table. And she was so afraid to venture to buy different books. And she's like, well, I really like this one. So I got four of them. (laughs) And that was so strange to me. And it really, I guess, is somebody who's who has a lot of confidence in their eye. um, And that's probably a gift that we all have here. A lot of people don't. And so... Yeah, it's, I mean, it's sort of like that fear can hold them back and that just makes Nas and and Dan and, you know, that much more important, I think, um, to helping people. 
I'm going to steal that four book idea, though. Yeah, I would help you. Great. It will help your book sales, Emily. You know, right? It's paint by right. number. I love it. But it would be almost, you know, you would be doing it uh, like satirically or something, you know, sure. not, yes. not in earnest. Yes. Yeah, from a different mm-hmm. POV, but I still like the, the yeah. impression. Yeah. yeah. But mm-hmm. Dan, I want to ask you, like, because, you know, I do think I've always thought that dealers, and Emily, you're a very stylish dealer. I've always thought that dealers, when I was learning design history and first getting involved in the design world, they were like, on the cusp. And it's so interesting, even now, as you're saying, you're, you're looking at quilts. I mean, I've been seeing it online, but it used to be you would take, or I would go to like a dealer like the late beloved Niall Smith, and you would learn about Biedermeyer. You would learn about Ampere. And I think designers would take their clients there. Now, of course, the internet has changed all this because so there, there are still dealers that have brick and mortar stores, thank God, but there's fewer of them or they sell more online. So how do you lead your clients who are interested, obviously they have to have some interest and they're, they've probably traveled as Emily would saying, you know, whatever. But how do you, do you just, do you take them places? Do you send them PDFs of items? I mean, I, a little of the romance, it seems to me, is gone. Yeah. Well, I would say there's a before and after, before and after COVID with how this experience worked, right? Because pre, like before times, I think we all loved to shop with people. It was part of the experience. It was part of how we could educate and sit on and talk about and touch. And, you know, for a couple of years, that wasn't so available. So the answer is now it's a little bit of everything. It's it's a little less hands-on. And what I see people doing is we show them things and then let them gravitate towards something and then we educate them, right? Because I'm not here to like force something upon my client. Rather, like, tell me what you're looking for. Let's build the dream together. And then, Michael, to what you said about like the cocktail conversation, like, and here's the fantastic thing about it, right? And I also think that clients want, my clients at least want something different. They want something beautiful, but they don't want to be afraid of the provenance of something. They don't want to be afraid that they don't totally understand. So it's kind of this delicate balance of like giving them enough information and insight that they appreciate without overwhelming. That's who my clients are. But, you know, the process is, yes, we send images. Yes, we're welcome to bring things. I think the fun thing still is that big aha when like if they just saw it on paper, if they just got the 360 on Cherish, it comes in and they're like, oh my gosh, it's so much better than I thought. And that's really fun. And Nas, would it be the same? I mean, obviously there's incredibly sophisticated design stores in San Francisco, as there are in, in New York as well. But is it sort of the same process for you? It is in a lot of ways. And I would say, you know, just to build off of what Dan was saying, the the thing that we do a lot on my team is really try to take shame an embarrassment out of being a beginner. So a lot of folks, I think, and this is something that's so funny because every dealer I've ever asked questions to, we're all just big nerds. Like we just want to share information and be excited about the same thing. And there's no circumstance, there's no pod, there's no, you know, there's no air about asking questions. We're all just deep appreciators of stuff that still exists in incredible form, even 200 years later. But I think for some reason, and I don't know if it's a class thing or a money thing or a, you know, sort of difficulty in navigating this part of the internet thing, a lot of our clients are deeply intimidated by asking the wrong question or coming across as ignorant of why something is valuable. And so I try and demonstrate in the in the rare times these days that we get to go out with our clients, 
I just ask a million questions in front of them and show like, I don't know everything at all. And that's actually the best part about this industry is that information and knowledge is infinite. I will never achieve expertise in everything and neither will any of us. And so that's great. So let's just find experts and sort of bask in their intelligence and their knowledge and have fun with it. But I think that's such a service to your clients because, you know, like I'll, I'll go to the winter show or I'll go to like, you know, antique shows, you know, and there's incredible stuff. And, you know, I've always been told, you know, just ask a dealer. The dealers love to share information, which I think is true. And yet even me, I'll be intimidated, you know, and, uh, you know, they're busy or there's someone, so it's just, you know, this is a hundred thousand dollars. I'm not going to buy it. I shouldn't bother the dealer to ask about it or whatever. But of course, that's the wrong approach. So I think that's such an important thing that you're doing. And I think, you know, Emily, the books that you write and the way, the way that, you know, even your little shop makes it so, you know, the fact that you have that hallway that looks like a baby Barard designed it and everything. I think that is such a fun way of, well, first of all, you kind of live with it, which you, so obviously you love it, but it's, it's, it's such an, a fun way of showing people a little bit of the past, but that it works for today. And I think that you must have a great response to that. Everybody, like to get anybody to show up at our door, (laughs) we are so grateful for it. For somebody to get out of their sweatpants and to like, to come down to 10th Street. So we want to reward them. Like we really, we really take it seriously that you've made the effort to come see us and we want it to be an experience. So if you have ever come to our place, it is like the Emerald City of Oz. It's extremely, you know, Emerald Green Hallway, Chartreuse Gallery, we want to make it colorful. We get such a response to just, you know, we want, it's an, it's an environment and an experience, not just the things that you're coming to look at. And so many people come, especially young people who are renting. And when I was renting, I did paint my walls, but I was, I was unusual for that. So many people live in white boxes in the city, you know, in a little white box apartment. And so it gives just, it gives them ideas, um, and to come. And another thing with my, my team that work with me, um, we are not a pretty woman, um, Rodeo Drive situation. (laughs) It's, it's part of the mandate to be very welcoming, very warm, and to make people feel comfortable. You know, there's no, snobbery at all and you know this you want people to feel relaxed and welcome and we're so lucky that they're 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 yeah. there and curious and and I don't mean to imply that I think dealers are snobby I think that's something that I project onto them you know I think so too. I think we all do. And and it's because the things that they sell are so one of one. Right. A lot of dealers are, you know, selling one of ones because furniture, fine furniture back in the day was all made for each client. But that doesn't negate the fact that this is something that could be for anybody. But yeah, I don't know. I I always wonder about that. Like, what is it about antiquities and old things? Is it the sort of like proximity to museums that makes us all so intimidated by the people who know so much? Or is it really just kind of the human lizard brain aversion to things that make us feel unsafe or uncomfortable or like unfamiliar, right? That we're all much more creatures of comfort than we even realize when it comes to our knowledge level about stuff. But yeah, I generally always have to psych myself into asking a hundred questions. It's not easy to me. It's not something where I'm just like, oh, I don't care. I'm just going to come in here and I'm going to go to the San Francisco Fall Antique Show and just 
ask a thousand questions of like, what's a hall tree? What is that for? Like, you know, I, I don't know either um, how folks really muster up the guts to just ask things when I'm feeling shy. And can I just say that if, if something is 300 years old, it's really well made and it's going to last another 100 or 200 years. I mean, the idea that antiques are precious or that you can't use them and there's something to look at is absolutely wrong. They're actually better made than a lot of new, newly made things today. And there's something about, especially if you're getting a wood piece, that there, there's some kind of the aging of the wood, it it does get this patina, this almost luminosity that you can't get with something new that just, you, um, we all have been using the word soul, but it, it really does bring this extra element into a room that gives it depth that you can't, you can't right. get without right. it. <laughs> so, Dan, I would say your aesthetic is a little more subdued and, and subtle than, say, Emily's, but do your clients, because it's very subtle, um, and a lot of the pieces that you do are, you know, they're not 18th or 19th century, they're 20th century. Do peop- do your clients understand the, the history of the 20th century and how valuable those, because I, I certainly certain periods of the 20th century have, you know, skyrocketed in price. And there was a time and it wasn't of 1950s items, you couldn't sell it to anybody. So how will your clients approach that? How do you you find them receptive or... Or not? I think the value of the piece has less to do with how my clients are saying yes to something versus how it looks in totality, how they live with it in totality. And the looks and the the life of it, I think, are really their meant for again, for my clients. And there are people that really care about provenance, that really care about the value and the background. And and I think for me, it can be a bit intimidating, even as the designer. Now, as you hit the nail on the head saying, like, I'm going to be master of, you know, nothing but know something about lots of things. That's how I like to approach this with clients. Like, do they know the value? Not always. That's not the most important thing to them. It's what, when we talk about living with soul, which I think is what, you know, living with antiques or living with the sense of historic reference, I look at this as heritage, Right. And our clients, most of my clients are coming to me to say, I'm here. I started here. Like I'm leveling up. How do I get a sense of heritage through these objects? So the value is almost secondary to the how does it look and how do I live with it? Is this functional, Emily? Right. Like is I don't want to be afraid of this thing. And so I tend to err more on the side of like, make it a joyful process and make it a happy addition to your home than something that is to be revered and almost feared in a way. Take the pedestal off the pedestal, right? Right, <laughs> great. great. And I, now I'd love to get a sense from each of you, what do you see next? Because there are, even when you think about the future of design, you know, the, you cannot think about the future without thinking back to like Werner Panton or Pierre Paulin or Pierre Cardin from the 60s. I mean, the, the future was set in the 60s, it seems like, the late 50s and 60s. And, you know, technology has changed everything. I mean, there was a time that everybody had little telephone tables throughout their apartments, you know, and multiple telephones. That, that's gone. You know, the desktop computer is essentially gone and those big desks that you needed to take them, you know, the TV set is basically, you know, from this huge box. It's now, you know, some flat screen that maybe it's behind on the wall or whatever. So what do you think people are going to be looking at from the past that will really inform the future of design? So now, why don't we start with you? 
I mean, oh, obviously, gosh. folk art. Folk art is something <laughs> they're like, looking at. I think that's cool. I sure hope so. I mean, let me get through my season of folk art before it becomes really <laughs> popular so I can still afford everything that I'm trying to collect for my clients. But I think, you know, what's kind of very charming is, especially, you know, I was reading uh, New Antiquarians, which is the book that Michael Diaz Griffith just released. There's so much energy right now around the art of collecting and this sort of spirit and hobby of doing so with young folks, not just New Antiquarians age, sort of like mid-30s and so, which is my age group, but young people, like Gen Z enthusiasts, like they're starting to buy one little object as a t- at a time because it's almost, again, like this connection back to something that comes before us, but doing it piecemeal, you know, one thing at a time because you can afford it that way. It's something that you can hunt for. It's something where you can go to a flea market and find the object. And so what I'm sort of maybe predicting, but I don't know yet, is the the exercise of figuring out how do you display these little collections. So I'm sort of hoping that China Hutches come back, for example, where people are putting their dishes on display. Tablescapes are becoming so popular again, like Robert Rufino's latest whole feature in House Beautiful was so cute. And there's there's all this new energy around dishes and sets. A huge and on Instagram. Things. Table yes. things on Instagram. And I think like table and shelf objects are kind of the thing that I'm I'm observing young folks getting excited about. And that's very exciting to me because it's a very accessible size, right? Talk about like Emily with the whole thing about renting. Who is buying collection furniture if you know that your movers are going to thrash your stairwell with it when you get evicted to your next place? <laughs> Little dishes and tiny shelf objects, like that's what's up. So my my hope is that displaying those collections will be the new new. Interesting. Let's hope. Dan, what about you? Is there something that you're looking at now that's percolating in the back of your head? You know, like, I mean, we, we had... Um, lead designer for William Morris on a couple of podcasts ago. And I think that that kind of, and they're, now they're doing outdoor fabrics from William Morris patterns, which I think is genius, makes so much sense. You know, I think for me, you speak about William Morris. I, I'm really excited about people sort of reconnecting the maker history of things, because I think we've we've had this maker moment, but sort of uniting maker with with sort of styles of the past, with sort of how uh, heritage ways of making things. Stay with me. This Pharrell menswear show for Louis Vuitton, this like blending of past and and future in a way, you know, heritage ways that things have been made and speaking just to the history of a brand, but through a new lens. I'm really jazzed about that. And Emily, I'm coming to you specifically. I have talked about Amaro Bawada swag in my office more times recently. And I have a wonderful and very young team. And so to educate them about these things, but then to encourage them to bring those like nuances of past forward into our, our current projects is sort of how I'm excited to think about living with history, living with heritage, living with antiques. Um, so it's not as specific as Nas's answer, but I love this blend and I love that we're seeing it. And I think we're going to see more of that. 
I, I do think the pendulum is always swinging back and forth and it is swinging more. It's back towards maximalism and layering and display. And it's so, you know, how Mario, when he first started using those big bow-tied ribbons to hang paintings, which is an 18th century device, everybody thought he was crazy, you know, when he was doing it in the late 60s. And then in the 80s, everybody was it's doing so funny. it. It's so true. And then it's so funny now to open up a magazine or an Instagram Instagram and you see like a 25-year-old just did it in their, you know, their Lower East Side apartment. And that makes me so happy, you know, and it looks different in each iteration and feels very much of that moment. So I personally will always love color and pattern. I find it's it's like a Prozac, you know, like my, my pendulum is never moving. <laughs> Here, we're stuck in time, <laughs> right, Emily? <laughs> stuck in time. Well, I think it's always fresh. Um, and it's always having a mix too, but it's exciting to see so many other people and younger generations kind of like into it and that it's it's like a Wes Anderson movie. It's like, it's feeling cool now, not just grandma. Right. It's funny, Granny Chic is like, who knew that was coming? And Granny Licious. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Okay, one last question. This has been so entertaining and I've learned so much. I want to ask each of you to think about, and this could be just for you personally, what will you, something you'll never use in your work, something you would never look at, a period that you think is ugly or just not of the moment. It's, you know, something that you hate. And I, you know, you cannot be a tastemaker without having things maybe you don't like to talk about it, but I'm going to twist your arm. Something that you really don't like and would never incorporate into your work. A period, a designer, you know, whether it it could karate chop pillows from the 70s, you know, whatever it is, something that you just don't (laughs) like. Okay, let's start with you, Dan. All right. Hate's a strong word, but (laughs) Victorian for me is just a different way to live, right? It was more formal than how we live now. And I think while there's amazing details and and things that I could pull forward into projects if I dissected and pull it forward, again, not hate, but for me, I like to live and encourage people to live with comfort. And I think sort of front of house, back of house, upstairs, downstairs, which is different than how we live now. So how's that? I think that's a very valid response. How about you, Nas? <laughs> I would say sort of similarly, but not, because I live in a world of Victorian. Yeah, San Francisco is a very Victorian yeah. city, and it, they made it work. We you know, are, it's a great city. We, we're trying our best to keep making it work. For me, and it's, not, it's a never say never, because mm-hmm. who knows what season True. I'll be in in a couple of years. I really have a hard time dressing a bed. I love looking at it. I love admiring other people. Like I love learning about all the different component parts that make a perfectly dressed bed and what you steam and how you layer all of, you know, like I I don't even know what half of the words are. <laughs> I just sort of watch people do this on YouTube. Nas, start it's, with quilts. Yeah, I think that's really, in their wheelhouse. There yeah. there, but there's the quilt, there's the quiltlet, then there's a thing oh, that goes over the, the flat sham, sheet. There's sort of the like this, there. the European oh, pillow, there's the, this. Yeah. The embroidery. The you know, and so it's the, phenomenal. Right. But I've never done one for a client. You know, like I'll, I'll have clients ask me to do everything down to the finest detail. And I'm like, you know, what I'd really rather do is just send you to this place that will make all of those choices for you. Because I just, I, it's not how my brain thinks yet. So I think it's just betting. Right. Betting. Interesting. Okay. Um, send them to me. I'm an expert bed okay, maker. Good. Oh my gosh. Perfect. Good to know. There you go. All right. And Emily, what about you? Because you are both a designer and a historian. So- is there some 
person or period you would never do a book on. You know, I mean, I you're you have a I wouldn't say all encompassing, but a broad range of stuff that you incorporate into your beautiful interiors and you you know so much history. What's a must to avoid? Oh well, now that okay, well okay. <laughs> But this is an even like heritage leather covered recliners with cup holders. Oh, that wow. okay, should that's, never be. Okay, that I'm not letting you get away with that because that's something we all. Would, I want something more so bad. historically of interest <laughs> that you just cannot personally adapt to or or get your mind around. Okay, I'm going to choose, I do love this new 70s sexy, you know, like sculpted sofa kind of thing, but I could never write about it because it isn't in my heart, but I love it and I think it's sexy and I would love to go to a nightclub or a bar that's like that. But so, I mean, I think as Dan says, I hate is such a strong word, And sort of the best of every period, you could kind of get your mind around. I would say, for example, like, I don't love Herder, um, East Lake style, that kind of like 1880s, 90s vibe. But the best of it, like when you also, when you look at back at like Peter Marino and Judd Johnson were doing these incredible translations of that style. I mean, that was so fabulous. So the best of it I love, but like the 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 bog standard stuff that was produced for most households, I think is awful. Is that that anyway. yeah. I mean that period leaves me no. cold. It's interesting. I don't know when heavy Victorian furniture, if ever, will come back. I you know, it's interesting. Yeah. But you know, when you see it at the Met in a period room or something, it can be kind of fascinating. And there's elements of it that are great and some of the fabrics are great, but I don't know. So it's interesting, yeah. you know, mm. but I can't thank you guys enough. I, this has been such an interesting and informative discussion. I really appreciate my wonderful guests, Naz Nazawa, Emily Erdman, and Dan Mazzarini. And thank you guys for coming and sharing your wisdom with us. And thank everyone for listening to the Cherish Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast brought to you, of course, by Cherish which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.